Hey everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world, and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our Substack. You'll find a link in the description. There's going to be examples of brands that are are focused on the creator, focused on the personality-driven brands. I think there's going to be companies like ours that try to take a unified brand approach to it. Building a brand is incredibly hard, right? It's incredibly hard to, to build recognition. And one of the things by naming our publication Dive, Food Dive, Construction Dive, Retail Dive, the standardized branding has allowed us to, A, build credibility with audiences who often will you know, share a respective dive with their spouse. Like I read Retail Dive, but my spouse is in the healthcare space. So I, I told him to sign up for Healthcare Dive, right? There is an experience that matters. It's also really scalable for the marketers. Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top-tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empire or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones, let's dive in. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short form clips directly from Riverside. Because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code Media Empires to get a 20% discount. Today's episode is with Sean Griffey, CEO and co-founder of Industry Dive, a business journalism company that reaches 14 million executives with an impressive slate of 32 vertical publications. Industry Dive was acquired by Informa for $525 million. We talked about an Industry Dive on other episodes of the show, including Morning Brew's Austin Reef and Packy McCormick of Not Boring. So I'm excited to share this conversation I recorded with Sean earlier this year. Sean's experience leading media empires through successful exits will be of interest to anyone curious about the process of building their own. Here's Sean. Sean, welcome to Media Empires. Thanks so much for joining. Eric, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Sean, insiders obviously know Industry Dive, but for those who are unfamiliar, can you describe the Industry Dive empire today and detail the, the evolution of, of how it came to be? Yeah, so Industry Dive is a, a, a business media company. We focus on niche B2B markets, anywhere from the retail space to food and beverage to solid waste and recycling. We have publications targeted for senior executives within those, within those industries. Today, we, we reach about 13 million executives, primarily through email, newsletters, but across platform web. We do some of our own podcasts, social, you name it, we're everywhere. Industry Dive itself has 120 journalists now covering those markets, and we monetize it using a marketing-supported model. 
So we have some of the, the biggest companies in the world that everyone would know, the Oracle, Salesforce's, IBM's of the world as some of our big advertisers. But we also do really well within these niches with companies, middle market companies, say with $100 million in revenue that have products for construction or the utility space, et cetera. Yeah. And was that the vision all, all along? How does it comp- you know, compare? Yeah, when you know when we launched, it, we were contrarians in the in the marketplace, right? Um, you know, the company is a little over ten years old now, um, and we launched at a time when BuzzFeed was raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Upworthy was the next big thing in social, right? When we went to launch something, we said we really believe in niche markets. And we launched in day one with five publications, one of which was the waste one I talked about, one of which was electric utility, one was construction. And when we went to get started, we looked to say, can we raise money behind this? And the answer was resoundingly no. No one was interested in niche business publications in 2012. But we knew that there was real value in these individual markets and that the way to build a big company was to be in a lot of them. So long way to say it was always the goal to be in multiple markets. Uh, We launched day one with five of them, which were three of us bootstrapping a business with five publications. As you can imagine, they were pretty bad, but we kind of just worked every day to to make them a little bit better and and finally got to where we are today. Yeah. And talk a little bit about... uh the broader landscape of, of business media, like if there were different phases of, uh, of you know, types of companies or, or, or kind of approaches, why don't you just talk about like in the last decade, how has business media evolved and where are we today? Yeah, I think there, there have been different phases. If you go back decades ago, the business media just considered trade publishing And what it was, was a lot of magazines and like all print media, we create just enough content to support all of the ads that we sell into it. Over time, as things shifted digitally, business media had a hard time replicating that model online. And so for a lot of people, they went in two different directions. They went into events and there's a whole host of B2B media companies that are are really event companies with some, some media properties to support it. And then a lot of them went into sort of data and we're not really selling news and information. We're selling pricing data of of people out there. We're tracking commodities in our markets. We're tracking inventory. When we launched, we said we're going to focus really on the news and on the media and that we can... There's still value to be made in the marketing supported business. So, So we were the contrarians there. We were email first. We were spent a lot of time on mobile, which was something that people in 2012 on the B2B side didn't really care about because they didn't know how they could monetize it. But then we focused on a customer base that wanted data and insights on their audiences. And so one of the great things about doing this digitally and with email in particular is that we could we could build sort of an understanding of our readers and what they care about and we could monetize them that way. Yeah. And I, I want to double down on many elements there, but while we're still zoomed out, you mentioned BuzzFeed and Upworthy and, you know, there were all these companies that raised these VC rounds and, you know, a lot of them didn't meet expectations to, to put it, to put it mildly. Why did that happen? What did everyone miss on consumer? What happened in, in, in that media space? Well, I mean, I, I think there's still, 
value there in a, in a lot of these. Like a lot of industries, media always susceptible to chasing the next biggest trend, right? Whether it be social or video or the rest. I think the real hard part with consumer is the scale you need to monetize an undifferentiated audience. And particularly when you're using programmatic as your mean to do it, right? I talk to people, if you went into a business school and said, listen, here's your idea. Put a third party between you and your customer and make it so opaque that you don't know who the customer is at any given time. People would be like, immediately say, that's a horrible idea. Why would you put third parties between you and your customer intentionally? And that's what the media industry did for decades. And that's what consumer in particular did, right? Is they said, it doesn't actually matter who our reader is and it doesn't matter who our customer is. We're just going to blindly do it. If you stop and say it that way, I don't need to know who, who's reading me and I don't need to know who I'm selling. It's a horrible business. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, talk about how business media is evolving a little bit. I mean, one of the things we're seeing with Workweek and Smooth Media and perhaps some others in the space is, is kind of like the rise of the individual. And, and you guys have kind of the unified brand, you know, dive across every single one. You hire the journalists in-house, whereas other companies are experimenting with localized brands localized influencers, and then also maybe even different arrangements where they don't, instead of some work in-house, some are full-time creators and they just fund them or co-found their entity with them. T talk about what you're seeing there and what do you think are the trade-offs with either approach or where do you see that going? Hey, I don't think there's anything, um, there's not one model that's going to win here, right? There's going to be examples of brands that are, are, focused on the creator, focused on the personality-driven brands. I think there's going to be companies like ours that try to take a unified brand approach to it. I can talk about for us what the advantages were first, right? When you're building something new, uh, building a brand is incredibly hard, right? It's incredibly hard to, to build recognition. And one of the things by naming our publication Dive, right, Food Dive, construction dive, retail dive, the standardized branding has allowed us to A, build credibility with, with audiences who often will share, you know, share a respective dive with their spouse. Like I read retail dive, but my spouse is in the healthcare space. So I, I signed them up. I told them to sign up for healthcare dive, right? There is an experience that matters. And, and we see people change jobs and write into us and say, I'm changing industries. Do you have a dive in this one for me? So that experience is great. It's also really scalable for the marketers. And when we launched, you know, we launched Manufacturing Dive about a month or two ago, we had charter sponsors from adjacent industries who said, I've had great experiences with you in these other industries. Sign me up for Manufacturing Dive. I know what I'm going to get. I know I'm going to get the quality for it. There is a sameness to what you're doing that I can be, I can be sure of results. So for us, it's part of the power of scaling to have the simplified piece of this. It, it allows Southwest Airlines, every pilot can fly every plane, every mechanic can work on it, right? The trade-off, though, we're building across markets. There's some specialization in some of those markets on a content side or the rest where our approach doesn't work as well. And certainly, 
with the creators and personality-driven media, there is an audience development hack there, which is one of the secrets to media, right? The faster you can grow an audience and build a valuable following, the, the faster you can monetize them and do interesting things. And so when you see an Axios or someone hire big name journalists right from the start, like it is clear those journalists are going to bring a following um, and they're going to bring a reputation. And when you see Workweek, not only bring in established creators, but then try to build them. You know, there's interesting things that they can do that, that we probably can't. Yeah, and the trade-offs go both ways. They, they might have an audience development hack, but also they have a risk that as the creator gets bigger, they're going to want to either renegotiate or leave the, leave the hive. Whereas imagine they just trust the brand and it's not that the journalist is replaceable, but it's, it's not that everything relies on the journalist. Absolutely. I think for us, we want to build something that there's not a single point of failure from one person leaving the company itself, the IP, the credibility we build lasts. But at the same time, you see people leave. The New York Times builds people up and they leave. The New York Times is still the New York Times and those people can create something else there. By the way, while they were at the New York Times, they helped the New York Times plenty. I would love to build up journalists that have a following and then go do something entrepreneurial and be successful. We're rooting to create stars, much like a work week's trying to create stars. I, I want to create those as well, just under our brand's umbrella. Totally. Talk a little bit about how, um, maybe let's walk through how you guys situate yourself in terms of, let's say, you know, CFO dive or any specific dive. Like what type of content or what type of value prop do you want to be providing CFOs or any of the sort of, you know, niche audience, audiences, that, niche readers uh, relative to what else exists in the market. Like, you know, Morning Brew is going into some similar spaces. Do you see yourself providing different value props and that there are other niche, like what, what is the value prop for any specific reader that you want to provide relative and what do you not want to provide, i.e. Leave, leave it to others? When we talk editorially, we talk a couple of things. One is very tightly define who the audiences are that matter to us, right? It is not a student. It is not a retiree. It is not an enthusiast. It is executives that are making decisions within these companies that we want to write for. And then it's the question of how do we serve them? And one of the examples that I give all the time that, that people can really latch onto between the difference of us and a lot of other media, when Amazon bought Whole Foods, we have a grocery publication, right? And when that came out, the Wall Street Journal did a great job covering it, but they cover the deal terms. They cover what's going to happen with the leadership. They cover the debt structure and the rest. And it was a day story. It was a week story. For us, for our journalists, we covered it. We're still covering it. What does it mean from a technology standpoint? What does it mean from an e-commerce standpoint for the grocery stores? What does it mean for customer service and pricing and the rest? And for our readers, it's what comes next, not what happens, but what does this mean to me and my job and my industry? How do I navigate the changes coming? And so our editorial approach when we're doing really well is insights into the future. And that can be incredibly hard, right? You don't, you don't hit on that in every story with something insightful. But we really say, what are the five trends shaping any of these industries? What stories are we going to own within those trends so that when we talk about a story, we can talk about how it fits along these trend lines and how it impacts the rest. So for us with small teams, that means we have to leave a lot of things behind, right? We're not breaking as much news as other outlets. We're not trying to go in there and scoop everyone. We're trying to go with insight in day two, day five stories. 
we're not covering the whole industry. We're covering the very specific components of it, right? There's a whole lot of the electric utility space that we're not covering, but we're covering key components of it. And our readers know, hey, if there's a bankruptcy in the retail space, retail.gov covers retail bankruptcies really tightly. And we're one of the first places to go. So I think that's the difference between us and mainstream media. I really respect what Morning Brew is doing with some of their niches. I think they're trying to do much of what we're doing. Their tone is obviously a little different. And some of the stories they're covering are a little different, right? I think they're taking in some of the industries a broader view of the vendors and players in there, whereas we're going market trends more. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, both valuable in, in different ways. I, th I believe you may have acquired CFO Dive from The Economist, or, or, or one of your publications you acquired. When you acquire a publication, are you acquiring it for its its audience, the journalists who write for it, the uh, the existing set of content? Or how, how do you think about sort of the build versus buy in the publication? Primarily, we're looking at audiences and markets that we like. I mean, that's the number one thing. And we've done five acquisitions. CFO was one. Pharma, a publication in the pharma space called Pharma Voice is another that we closed recently. For us, when we do acquisitions, it's, okay, what are the audiences there? What are the digital assets that we think we can monetize? I mean, that, not to be arrogant about it, but we think there's a lot of publications out there that have great content. And maybe they were founded by a one or two person team who were incredible journalists and could really write great content and build audiences, but they didn't maybe think about the business side of this. Like, how are they going to monetize it? How are they going to make it sustainable? What is the technology they're going to use? What's the data structure underneath going to be? And so when we look at these, we think, okay, can we help take this, their baby and put it into a different platform for us? So we'll buy a publication Almost always, we put it onto our tech stack as fast as possible. We standardize a product set so our sales team can sell it. We use our audience development team to supercharge what they have in the audience. But we try to keep the things that make it special, which is often for us the great content that they have, the audiences they have, the journalists they have as well. And is the litmus test for a price, for, is it something like, hey, if we can 3X it within a certain period of time or 5X it or 10X, is it that simple of a limits test? And do all these acquisitions look different in terms of cash for stock? Or like, how do these acquisitions work at a high level? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a case-by-case -case scenario on some of this. A lot of times we've been, uh, the company's at a, a scale now where we've been able to do these acquisitions out of cash flow. And so we're we're just buying straight straight either an asset deal or some sort of component of it. Certainly we have our own metrics for what we're looking for and multiples that we're willing to pay and able to pay. And, and in our, our part of the world, it's usually an EBITDA multiple, not, a, not revenue multiples. If I have 20 due diligence questions, 18 of them are going to be about the audience. 18 yeah. of them is going to be about the data that they have and what they're going to do. Because at this point, we have a pretty good idea of what's going to work in our model, for better or worse. I mean, I'm sure we leave opportunity on the table at times because we don't see something, how it fits into our model. But 80% of what I look at is tell me about your audiences. Tell me what they do. Tell me how engaged are they. When you send out an email, what's the delivery rate? What's the open rate? Like all of those things I care about a ton. What was last month's sales? I care about very little. Yeah. No, good, good, good to know. That, that makes a lot of sense. How have you thought about multi-platforms, whether it's you know podcast or, or YouTube or, or other just f formats? 
you've experimented some one you talk talk a bit about that and, and what you what your framework is I'm not anti other platforms. In fact, we do quite a bit of virtual events, either one or two day events or webinars and the rest. We do have podcasts. We increasingly do video for clients. I'm not the I'm not the first person to say I'm going to go invest $10 million to build a new video platform. Actually, there was a competitor of ours that spent 20 some million trying to build a video platform in the electric utility space. And that's $20 million that's today gone, right? Because the electric utility space didn't need a TV studio video platform for it. So for me, it's let's see what someone else does, see where there's money, see where there's client demand, and we'll chase after it at that point. Totally. And I'll, I'll press more on podcasts for a second. I'm curious why, and I know you have it for some verticals, and why not for all? Is it because I can imagine that every interview would also create article or a set of articles. And so it would dovetail nicely on a content perspective with the, with the publications you already have. And then it'd be additional, you know, revenue streams. Is it that it's hard to do, or it's just not worth your time given all the other things you're doing? It's more of the latter for us. I mean, I think the great thing about when you build these audiences, there are tons of opportunities for things for us to do, right? And I really like podcasts and I find myself consuming more and more of my own media via podcasts, right? Which maybe says something, but I also say I'm not necessarily like the audience, right? My own personal behaviors. You look at what we're doing there are dozens of other industries we could be in doing what we do really well. There are logical extensions that most media companies would do already, like events, right? That we're not really in, in physical event space. And then I think there's just really interesting opportunities to do communities and peer-to-peer within the markets we're in that I really love and am passionate, excited about. I think if I was going to be an entrepreneur all over again, I'd really be thinking about the peer-to-peer market from a media standpoint. And so you just stack all those up like, where's, where's podcasts in the, in the list of this, you know, and I'm, I'm happy. Like when the team says, we've got an idea for a podcast, we have a way to do it. We've got sponsors. I'm like, go run after it, but it's just not going to be the corporate focus. Totally. Yeah, no, like you, I, I too am consuming a, a lot of it. And I've looked across some of these categories as to, you know, are there really compelling podcasts in the space? And, and some do, but, but some don't. And maybe there's a testament to that's an opportunity, or maybe it's a testament to, hey, there's just not that much demand. Do, do you happen to know data on, do your audiences listen, listen to podcasts? Absolutely. The question of, do they want to listen to niche business podcasts, right? Our audience, they listen to a ton of podcasts. They listen to a ton of sports podcasts and general news podcasts and murder mystery podcasts and the rest. Do they want a weekly podcast on waste and recycling? I don't know. That's the hard part. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Within the podcast that you do have, is there like anomalies in there or are they all doing around the same or is like one like, wow, this audience, you know, crushes it and this audience just doesn't listen to niche podcasts? Like, are you finding? Well, I mean, it's, I don't know if I can say, right? Because in our portfolio, we have winners and losers in different industries all the time. And what separates that is generally us. It's how good are we in that industry? How good are, is our content? How good is the rest? And, and we certainly see that in the newsletters. We see that in the podcast and the rest. And I, I would argue, I'm not sure I could say that, no, the, these people don't like podcasts. It may just be they don't like us. Um, and some of that's fair. Totally. You've been running Industry Dive for over a decade. If you were to start, have started it in 2023, you know, next month, you know, given how the world is changing, knowing what you know now, 
what, what are some things that you might start on a different track? As a segue, one of your answers, it seems, as you just implied, is spend more time on the you know, peer-to-peer community side. I'm, I'm curious what that could look like. Well, uh, let's talk about the peer-to-peer second. I mean, I, I think there's a, a couple of things that I would do differently. One, um, we invested nothing in PR or marketing for ourselves for eight or nine years. And we said every time we publish a newsletter, that's marketing, right? Um, And we didn't do any of it. And you look at what someone like Axios did where they came out and coined smart brevity as like a term for what they've done and built a brand and were very deliberate about the brand building. If I had to do it all over again, I would definitely spend more time and effort into doing that. I think that only would help us A, attract audiences, B, attract clients, and and C, our employees are pretty proud to work at Industry Dive now, but there was a six, seven-year period where no one ever heard of us, right? Um, And we were competing for talent with the politicos of the world and the New York Times of the world and not having a brand hurt. So I would do that differently. We also were very smart and focused about first-party data from the beginning and what we were building. But we absolutely did not invest enough in it. And if I had to do it all over again, even though I've said the whole time, this is like important to us, the world-class company that starting today is going to be thinking about the data that, that they generate, the data exhaust they have, and how they can better capture that and you know use it in valuable ways within the organization externally. So those are the two things that I would look at differently. Peer-to-peer I just think there's a real opportunity. I don't know if you uh, know a company, World 50. Um, You know, it's a um, very successful, very large company. They have peer groups for C-level executives, right? It's the World 50 for CFOs, World 50 for chief marketing officers. They're incredibly selective. Um, They're uh, incredibly expensive to join, uh, six figures, And the value is really interacting with their peers. Historically, that means live face-to-face interactions, right? I think there's a a world and a market for doing that at the director and manager level, not at the six-figure price level, but bringing peers together that doesn't have to be entirely in person today like it, like we thought it was in 2018, right? And I think you can build an industry dive um, or industry dive can build peer communities within our audiences. And I always talk about, um, you know, and, and I, I stole this from someone else, but the abandoned job titles within every organization, right? The, their uh, diversity inclusion, we have an HR publication, very big. Um, within our reader sets, uh, diversity inclusion efforts are very big with almost everyone, um, you know, most companies these days. And, and mo- many companies have hired someone to focus on diversity inclusion, but they've hired one person, right? And that one person doesn't have anyone else within their organization to talk to about it. It's sort of the, the one person, you know, with that job title within an organization. And if you can create peer communities under an HR dive umbrella, you can partner that with the media properties where we help them build their brands by letting them publish their thoughts in HR dive on these topics, right? We can build them up as experts and provide peer stuff. I just think there's a huge opportunity to do that. Totally. That's something we've done with, with on deck in the, in the founder space, but I mean, every industry uh, could, could benefit. Yep. From, from sure. and, and, 
there's a lot of peer communities out there. There's just no one that's done it scaled across industries. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the value of this. Like who, who is trying to do this in a scaled way? Yeah. That, that, that's really interesting. Talk a bit about the events, how you see conferences and events for your business and where you see it going. Yeah. The great news for us, this summer industry dive was acquired by Informa, which is the, the world's largest event company out there, right? For us, the opportunity with Informa is bringing together the online and offline. How can we take our communities, take our advertisers, serve as our role as connectors between ecosystems in those industries and, and bring them together digitally and in person? But also, then what can we do with the data that's generated with that, right? Which I think is where it gets really interesting. We get a lot of intent data when people come to our sites to read about topics. If we want, we can divine what they're in market for, what they're trying to understand, right? You know, our marketing dive publication, if you're starting to read a lot about CDPs or ESPs, maybe you're in market for that. If we can then say, hey, Eric, you're reading about CDPs on our website, but you also went to this marketing conference and here are the three sessions you went to and here are the five vendors you met with, right? You can build very interesting, intense signals from that with the online and offline data. And so I think that's one of the things that I'm really excited about what we're doing is not just expand our event presence, not just convene the folks and help them network and understand and shape the trends online. We want to do that. But then what are the new things that we can build on, on top of this? And that, that comes from the data. Totally. If you could acquire any type of company doing any type of thing separate from publications, what other capability could you see yourself in a dream world wanting to acquire? <laughs> I got a whole roadmap across of this stuff, right? There's a couple things. I've always said, could we jumpstart an event business? I think Inform is going to help us now. But if someone came up and said, I've got conferences or hosted buyer events in six of your markets, I'm like, sign me up and let's put them in our six markets. And then let's use your capabilities to put them in 20 more. So I would do that. Clearly, if someone had any sort of scaled community offering, I would be excited to look into that. I'd have to talk informant into that, but I'd be excited to do that. And then are there people that have this demand gen sort of intent-based capabilities that we can apply over top of ours? That's three. And then four... I think learning is something that we should be thinking about across our audiences all the time. And so is there a learning business or capabilities that we can mirror with ours? Those are the yeah. four things I think about all the time. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. F fascinating stuff. You know, you've been honing this playbook for a decade of, of launching new categories and you've learned so much. What does the playbook now nowadays look like in terms of maybe how you pick a category? I know you have some questions you ask, how you like staff a category, or what, you know, what's the minimum viable staff into how do you build that initial audience? Yeah, this is going to be an interesting year for us because we've historically launched two to three new publications every year. If someone stopped and said, why didn't you launch 20 in one year? The answer would have been, well, we just couldn't have handled it organizationally. But the reality is you can't speed that up. And there's, there's a bit about building an audience, like a, a solid foundation of an audience that takes a long time to build. And so the faster you launch publications, the better off you are. And so this year, our goal with Informa is to launch 12, which scales bigger than what we're doing. So it's going to be an investment year for us launching three or four every quarter. 
going into 2023. So that's the backdrop to get to your questions. We do have a criteria we look for to get into industries. We look for industries that are heavily impacted by technology or regulation, and particularly technology is one that we like. There's a need to know the news at that point, right? The audience has to keep up or their job, their industry can change around them, right? So there's A, a lot of news, but B, you have to, cha- you have to keep up or you could be obsolete quickly. We look for audiences with high capital spend, and that's really based on our model, which is marketing-supported, ad-supported businesses, right? There are some very good markets where the people inside it just don't buy anything, right? Investment bankers, I always joke, the only thing they buy is laptops and plane tickets, right? And so there's not an ad market to support an investment banker. Those businesses have to be subscription-based, There's valuable news for them, and and there's a media property there, but it's got to be subscription-based, which just isn't really what we're doing. So we look for high capital spend. We look for competition. So I'm not the first cannabis publication out there, right? Like back to we talked about Fast Follower. I would rather see a whole bunch of publications that we have to compete with in the space because that just means the money's there. Then it becomes an execution operation game. And that's like where we will make our bet is on the execution phase, not the market creation phases. So often that competition can come in other publications. It can come in the event of trade shows, anything that shows an ecosystem we're looking for. So that's the backdrop. In terms of how we launch, again, like it goes back to our bootstrap background. Like what do we need to get up? When we first started, we would have like... I was overseeing freelancers on a couple publications, right? And then we hired one dedicated journalist that would oversee freelancers. Today, we've sort of grown past that. And there's an expectation from our readers and audience that the quality is going to be there from day one, right? So we have minimum two full-time journalists, one editor and one reporter, and it tends to be one senior person and one junior person. And it, it can either be the editor or the reporter that's junior or senior. It's based on the talent we find. So we post, post for all of it and see, see who we can attract. If we can get a great editor that knows the space, perfect. If we can get a reporter that knows the space, even better. But we're looking for one of those two. And then more than anything, we hope to leverage the rest of the company infrastructure to let it grow and take root. So we historically don't assign salespeople or dedicated internal resources to a publication until it gets bigger and there's something to sell. Now, we're going to launch 12 of these next year. We're hiring for some other roles because we need to we need someone to, to train and onboard 30-some new journalists that are coming on board. We need more managers to support that growth. We're going to actually have sales teams focused on some of these. So it, over time, it's been different. But I think you know, you see a ton of media companies launching today with one person in a Substack and go from there. And I'm kind of a believer in that's the product market fit of, of media is an audience. And so as lean as you can go until you get an audience, that's my default. And you go from there. And you mentioned Substack. If Substack were able to collect some of the first party data, would you, if you're starting 2023, would you start on Substack? Or is it it's just, there's no way they can collect some of the amount of data that you're collecting or... 
I think I'd be okay starting on Substack, but my plan would be to get off of it as soon as possible. If I wanted to save money and do the rest, I would be there and get off as soon as possible. I think some of the limitations in terms of how you can monetize on Substack, I know everyone gets around it, right? There's no ads on Substack, except there's ads in every Substack, those kinds of things. I just would go on my own platform that was building for something longer and bigger. But if I was bootstrapping starting, or if I was an individual journalist with a following, it's certainly an easy way to get going. Yeah. And, and, and you guys aren't, so you, you mentioned contrarian, you bucked the trend on, on subscription because that was hot for a moment. Are there some categories where you're, where you're you know, maybe launching and saying, hey, does subscription make more sense? Or is it just orthogonal to wh- what your business is set up to do? When does subscription make sense versus not make sense? And, and, and why not for you guys? You know, I think there's some of our publications where a premium type product, whether it be a subscription or a membership, makes sense, right? So our, our waste publication is really good from a content standpoint. And the editorial team there does an incredible job. It is one of our smallest markets from an ad-supported standpoint. And I, I joke that, you know, the problem with the waste industry is every time they have a problem, they literally dig a hole. And that's like all you need to do is like they literally can bury all of their problems, you know. And so uh, there's not a lot of Extra, you know, there's not a big SaaS software play in the waste industry right now. There's not a lot in there. And, and as such, it's not as hot of a digital marketing space as some of the others. And so we've always had this conundrum of we have an incredible publication that's widely read, but we're not monetizing it nearly as well as we are, say, the retail publication where e-commerce and, and DSC is sort of changing the underlying technology of it. Um, it probably would be better as a subscription, you know, the waste dive um, or a membership or premier premium kind of offering in there. The hard part is we've never done it is because it's just goes back to the opportunity costs and like where, you know, are we going to build this out when we have all these other things to chase, like there's new publications. So I think someday there's going to be a pivot where we say now is the time we want to monetize more of this and we want to optimize the publications we have, and there'll be subscriptions coming in, but it's not on the 2023 roadmap. I'll tell you that. You know, there's this person who's coming on the podcast. His name is Nathan Latka. He runs a podcast for SaaS founders. And what he does is he gets their revenue benchmarks and then he, he gets some data that's, that's not online. He then packages it and sells it. And I, I think, I think that's intriguing. You, you guys collect a lot of data too, I think based on like reading patterns, but like, what more data do you do you want to collect in the future to the extent that you know it, it, that you could chat about it? We think about data for both our readers and then data for our marketing partners, right? And what do we want to do? And right now, phase one is okay. We're doing data for our marketing partners, and we can tell them really interesting things, right? I always talk about the examples. You know, we we could tell when CFOs stopped reading about PPP loans in the pandemic, right? When when that became old hat, and I think having that information and being able to package it and sell it or value, give it as value add to our customers in a more scaled way is something that I'm I'm really interested in. That's sort of the the behavioral data. There's also tons of data that would be really interesting for our readers. And I think those are some of the things that I'm always thinking about, you know, what what can we say about the restaurant fast casual industry that other people can't because we're covering it every day? What trends and information can can we collect? I'd love to do that. I think there's a, a research business 
within industry dive that we haven't even really unlocked, which is, can we get access to public data sets? Can we get some proprietary data sets? And then can we do, you know, sort of the GLG surveying of our audience to come up with something different? I think there's ways to do that in, in a lot of our industries. Yeah. You know, it, it's, um, it's really interesting from a content perspective, one thing I'm seeing in tech and, and maybe it's anomalous to tech, but I'm, I'm seeing that a lot, you know, a lot of the content is now coming from practitioners in, in ways that it didn't, that didn't happen like a decade ago is, is like all journalists, but now it's, it's practitioners going direct or it's journalists channeling practitioner, like interviewing practitioners, like curating, you know, thoughts from practitioners, but practitioners have become much more like content focused as a way to build their brand, uh, build their, build their audience and become the vendor or, you know, supplier or whatever of record. And, and when I'm, I'm curious to what extent you're seeing that in, in your industries. And if you, like right now you're hiring journalists, could you imagine also in the future, like where there are specific creators in the same way that I guess work we's doing it, but within less tech focused industries, like, do you see that as a trend that's happening and something that you guys could potentially get into at some point too? I think so. You know, at, at times I question how much of this is new, yeah. you know, like, um, is it, is it something that's happened that we just put a different label on a different time, right? There, there's always been experts that have gone and created something out of their own expertise. I do think the best content comes from the practitioners who know something really well, yeah. but also have a voice. And it's rare when you get someone who knows something really well that also has a voice that resonates. And so I think that's going to happen. I think if you find those people, you've got some, you know, you got magic in a bottle. I just don't know if we're pushing for creators so much that people that have knowledge but don't have a voice, like, is, is there a role for them long term? I don't I don't know. Right. Um, because it's it's, you know, say something smart, but say it interesting. Um, and, and two totally also, different skills. And then also have the time. Uh, you know, exactly. If, if you could say something smart and say something, yeah, and, and if you're smart and interesting, you know, you're probably very busy. Um, yeah. What is interesting, I mean, when you have a journalist coming into, let's say, you know, food or waste or so, some new space, I, I imagine they're somewhat new to that space. And so they have to get up to speed pretty quickly. What, what advice do you, do you give for that? Or like, how do you, how do you help them, you know, get up to speed? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the first thing is we try to screen for it, right? I've got a million different questions that I try to ask to see do you get wonky about things? Like, do you actually want to dig in and care about this industry? You know, like, I, I mean, the, the amazing things is all of these industries are incredibly fascinating if you start peeling the onion and getting into it, right? And so for us, it's how do we find people who want to peel the onion versus want to just tell a story or want to, you know, um, do things like may maybe they shouldn't be covering it. You know, they should be writing for consumer media because covering it on a surface level works. You know, the the best people are the ones who get deep into it. And so that's the, I don't know if that's advice, but if you find yourself not caring about the details of something, if you've never, you know, if you aren't the expert among your friend group about a specific topic, then you probably aren't going to do great in niche media. You know, because you, you're, you're not an expert in anything else in your life. Like, you're not going to be the expert, you know, in uh, contract manufacturing. 
Yeah, you got got to get a got to get obsessive about it. You described the evolution of industry dive in terms of starting with five publications and adding from there. On the monetization side, you you, you mentioned some you know huge clients that, that you work with. Um, when did you really start to have kind of critical mass um, that you could go to some of these bigger clients, or what was your kind of evolution on on the on the marketer side? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm lucky I had a co-founder who's really good. Uh, on the revenue component, a guy, Ryan Wilmson, and, and uh, my other co-founder, Eli Dickinson's, you know, the CTO and does the tech stuff. So we got really lucky that we had two great folks right away. I mean, I think the amazing thing for us is, I mean, I'll never forget our first ad came in um, in the construction space. And it was, I think, $180 CPM um, for people in the construction space. And, and that was in part because we had an incredibly small audience. Um, and so we charged it, you know, anytime, like for us, you know, I always say we need 20,000 people in the newsletter for it to be worth the biggest company's times. Um, you know, cause, cause they'll just stop and say, I, I like your audience. I like the rest. I just can't spend time creating a campaign, tracking a campaign for 2000 people. I, I need more mass, but 20,000 of the niche people is when you can really do something interesting for folks and, and when it's worth their while and time. So, so that's, you know, one of the benchmarks I look at, it doesn't mean we don't monetize before it's just the world opens up somewhere around the, you know, 20,000 person mark. Yeah. Ge gearing towards, uh, towards the end here at closing, you mentioned in a previous podcast that, that maybe the, the last couple of years, there was kind of like a Craigslist moment. What, when you talk about what you meant by that or, or kind of where, where you see things, uh, where you see things going or where's opportunity? Yeah. I mean, I think when I'm talking about the Craigslist moment, it's more about the Craigslist coming and, and cleaving off components of the newspaper industry is, you know, how it's coming. Kind of like, like we just taken the classifieds and going the rest, right? I think there's just a ton of dynamics that make this an interesting time in the media industry. One, you know, the physical event industry, um, why we go to events, um, you know, there's probably seven or eight reasons people go to events, right? It's, you know, education, it's networking, it's, you know, all kinds of these things. Chunks of that can now, you know, post-pandemic, we can now do lot, some of these things virtually that we never thought you could yeah. do before. Right. And um, you never could think about networking virtually or you never thought you could pitch virtually, you know, and the rest. And we can do that now. Um, and we're much more receptive to doing things digitally than we were before. That doesn't mean the event industry is going away. It's, it's not like people want and need to go um, into the event industry. But I think if you think of are there use cases that now can be better served in different ways? I think there are. And um, so that's one industry, you know, thing that I think really is interesting. The other piece is this real strong push for privacy. The pendulum swinging back uh, on data rights and privacy. And I think that for publishers is an incredibly healthy thing. And I, I think that's counterintuitive because there's going to be pain in the process. But for people with real audiences and valuable audiences... Um, and first party data, like there's an incredible trend now and there's a, like the almost genie back in the bottle and we can start over um, with some of this that I hope other people are taking advantage of. You know, I think there's a, there is a 
a media model 10 years down the road, which is much healthier than we've had the last 10 years. And it should be just an incredibly exciting time if you're running a media company right now. That's a great place to, to wrap. Uh, Sean, I feel like I just did a session with the, the godfather of, of business media. You've built a iconic business in, in this space, and, and it feels like you're also just beginning, uh, even 10 years in. So thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing some of your wisdom with, with the audience. Really a lot of fun. Thank you, Eric. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short-form clips directly from Riverside. Because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code MEDIAEMPIRES to get a 20% discount. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech, business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co.